Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Like I said last week, I was going to do one night on Sermon on the Mount. I thought, that's kind of cheating you guys out because I could just casually go over them. But as we've been getting into the Sermon on the Mount, really the, this whole point of this class is on obeying Jesus, obeying Jesus' commands. And this is a famous sermon of Jesus' actual words in the Sermon on the Mount. And so let's go back to chapter 5, and I want to read verses 17 through 20 as a review because we need to get focused in on what, where we kind of ended up last week, okay? So Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17, this is right after the Beatitudes and being persecuted and being the light of the world and all that good stuff. So Matthew five seventeen, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, let me give you some review of what we, if you weren't here last week, let's just give you some review of what we talked about. Number one, and this, this is not in your notes, so we won't start yet. I'm just giving you a review. Jesus has not come to abolish the law or get rid of the law, but he's come to fulfill it. And we, we understood what that meant. How did Jesus fulfill the law? Well, he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross, and he rose again, bringing to completion all of those Old Testament types and shadows. And we talked about the difference between the ceremonial law and the civil law and the moral law and how he fulfilled the ceremonial law and the civil law, but the moral law is still binding, i.e. the Ten Commandments. So the moral law, the Ten Commandments, is still binding, it's still God's standards, but it's used for two purposes. Number one, for the lost person, for an unbeliever, the law of God, the moral law of God, is meant to show them that they desperately cannot keep it and that they need a Savior and that they are unable to keep the law and it should drive them to their knees in despair saying, I can't do this, I can't save myself, I can't be obedient enough to the law to save myself, I need someone to save me. Secondly, for the believer, for the Christian, the moral law is binding as a rule of life, a guide of life, to be blessed of God, to be in God's will. So we as Christians are still to obey God's moral law. And Jesus goes on to explain that. Now, the, the statement we said in verse 20 sets the stage for the rest of chapter 5. Verse 20, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What type of righteousness did we say the scribes and the Pharisees had? It was an outward, legalistic type of righteousness that was wanting to be seen by others. It wasn't going to the heart of the issue. And so Jesus is basically saying, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give you six illustrations. So this is where we started last. This is where your notes start. Jesus gives six illustrations here in chapter 5 to show how our righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. And I said that these six illustrations all basically had the same idea. It, it was the issue of the heart. Just committing the outward act doesn't mean that 
you, you, you're necessarily holding to the law. So the first two we looked at last week where we ended up, hatred in the heart is equal to murder. What did Jesus say? You've heard it said, and he's going to quote what the Pharisees are saying, not necessarily what the Old Testament law says, but what the Pharisees interpreted the law. And then he says, I say to you. So the big issue was you've heard it said, don't commit murder. I say to you, if you're angry with someone, you've committed murder against them in your heart. Okay, so that was the issue we talked about. And then last week where we ended up, Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I'm going to raise the ante and say, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. So lust in the heart is equal to adultery. So those were the first two. Can one of you men close that door back there? Just, um, the, 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 those are the first two of the six illustrations. So Jesus is going to illustrate for us by giving six illustrations how our righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. And it's all about the heart. Okay? So we're going to move on to number three, which is Jesus' teaching on divorce and remarriage. This is very controversial. You probably have a lot of questions. I want to address it. So we're going to spend some time talking about this because if statistics are accurate, according to the population, over half of people in churches have experienced a divorce. And so we need to understand what the Bible teaches on that. So let's talk about divorce and remarriage. So this is illustration number three of Jesus' six illustrations of how our righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. So number one, anger. Number two, lust. Number three, divorce. So let's read, let's pick up in verses 31 and 32. And Jesus does not say a lot. That's why it's controversial. So here we go. Matthew 5, 31 through 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, remember what Jesus was doing. Jesus was making a statement about what the Pharisees interpreted the law to mean. Okay, not necessarily what the spirit or the letter of the law was. So let's ask the question, because he's quoting from the Old Testament. What was the Old Testament teaching on divorce? Before we get to Jesus' teaching, because he says, you've heard it said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Okay, that comes directly from Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. So Deuteronomy 24 gives the teaching from the Old Testament on, uh, on rules for divorce. So, so let's read that. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Now I'm going to write a word up here. That's the key word. If he finds some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the later man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts her in a hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife and her former husband has sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled for that is an abomination before the Lord and she will not bring sin upon the land that your Lord God has given you for an inheritance. Okay, so what the Old Testament permitted was that a man, just a man, that's very important, no rights for women back then, okay? So this didn't apply to women. Women couldn't divorce back in the Old Testament. Only the man could. And he could divorce based upon finding something indecent in her. Now, does that sound kind of, like, what does that mean? (laughs) You define indecent. 
Well, let's talk about, we'll talk about that in a minute. So, the first thing we need to understand from the Old Testament is that, come on, clicker, God does not command divorce, but he permits it. I want to make that very clear. God never commands divorce, but he only allows it. Now, why, the question is, why did God allow divorce? Go to Matthew chapter 19, because Jesus is going to give you more teaching. We'll come back to Matthew 5, but Matthew 19, he expands upon this issue of divorce. So go to Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9. Because the Pharisees are going to come to Jesus and ask him a question about divorce. He's going to quote Deuteronomy 24, and then he's going to reiterate what he's taught in the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus gives the explanation of why divorce was permitted in the Old Testament. Okay? So, Matthew 19, 3 through 9. Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking him, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? What's their question? Is there any reason... I mean, is there any reason out there whatsoever that you can divorce your wife? Point blank. I mean, any reason. He answered them, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they're no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? That's in reference to what we just read in Deuteronomy 24. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another commits adultery. Now what does Jesus do here? When they ask him a question, what is the first thing he says? Have you not what? Read. He appeals to the written word of God. And where does he go to? He goes back to Genesis. And basically says that I'm going all the way back to Genesis, which is before Deuteronomy, which means that marriage is a binding, marriage is a binding covenant upon all creation. Before the law came in, before sin came into the world, marriage, God's plan for marriage was from the very beginning, before, anybody, before any law, before Moses, before Abraham, even before Adam and Eve. And then he quotes Genesis where it says, a man shall leave his father and mother and they shall become one flesh. He talks about the one flesh union in this covenant of marriage. And then he says, what God has put together, let man not separate. So Jesus elevates the permanency of marriage according to the written word of God going all the way back to Genesis from creation and says that it's a, solemnly, a solemn thing that God has joined together. But he says here's the reason why Moses permitted it. What does he say there? Hardness of heart. Now you guys, let's just talk about that. In other words... What Jesus is saying is sometimes there are sin issues, there are hardness of heart issues between husbands and wives where the only final answer is divorce. Permitted, not commanded. What does God think about divorce? Well, let's go back to Malachi chapter 20, chapter 2. Malachi 2, 14 through 16, God says, 
You say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one is done who has done so has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord of God of Israel. And whoever covers his garment with wrongs, says the Lord of hosts, so take heed of your spirit and don't deal treacherously. What does God say there? I hate divorce. Okay? Jesus appeals to the Old Testament and says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So when I, when I perform a marriage ceremony, I'm not doing the marriage. I'm officiating a service, but in my heart and mind, I believe God is the one that's joining them together. God is bringing them together, and Jesus says that's a permanent relationship. God hates divorce, okay? So, it was permitted in the Old Testament if a man found something indecent in his wife because of hardness of heart. Now, by the time of Jesus' day, fast forward to Jesus' day, there were, two religious, there were two schools of religious leaders. They were, they were split into two schools of how they interpreted Deuteronomy. How did they interpret indecency? Okay, so there were two. In the, among the scribes and the Pharisees, there were, there were two schools of thought on how they dealt with this whole issue of divorce. The school of Shema. Oh, both of these permitted divorce by the woman. I mean, both of these permitted divorce of the woman by the man, not the other way around. A woman couldn't divorce a man on the grounds of something indecent. But they actually couldn't agree upon what indecency was. So let me give you the two schools. The school of Shammai, they interpreted the expression, this was the more conservative view, they interpreted the expression to refer to gross indecency, though not necessarily adultery. So they limited it probably to something sexual. Not full-blown adultery, but maybe any type of sexual or indecent sin that they saw in their wife, they felt like the school of Shema said, or Shammai said, they could, they were commanded to divorce her. Okay? Now, the more liberal school was the school of Hillel, and the school of Hillel interpreted the meaning of indecent beyond just sexual sins to include anything real or imagined, such as an improperly cooked meal, the wife got ugly, or she didn't clean the house. So this, the Hillel school would say, if your wife burnt the toast, you're commanded to divorce her. That's a, that, she's acting indecent. Now, remember, women had no rights. This only appealed to men. Men, and what these two schools of thought both said, they commanded divorce. Do you see the difference between commanding and permitting? So by the time Jesus comes on the scene, these two schools of thought had totally abused the Old Testament to where pretty much males could do, husbands could do pretty much whatever they wanted if they didn't like their wives. If it was quote-unquote indecent. And Jesus doesn't buy either one of these views. What does Jesus say? Go back to Matthew 5. What does Jesus say? He's got one reason. Jesus defines the exception clause. It's not a cooked meal. 
It's not she gets bags under her eyes. It's not that she, you know, ran the car, got in a wreck in her cart. Jesus says there in verse 32, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, which in the Greek, the word sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. We get our word porn or pornography from it. Porneia is the word Jesus uses. That is the only reason Jesus gives for divorce. Sexual immorality. Now, there's two different words in the Greek language. One for sexual immorality, and there's a different word for adultery. But he uses the word here, sexual immorality. So it's a broad term. This is why sometimes it gets controversial. If Jesus would have said adultery, it would have been more specific, but he uses the word porneia, which is a little bit broader. And so it covers any sexual sins that goes beyond adultery. It can be homosexual intercourse, it can be bestiality, pornography, any type of sexual sin. Okay? But let me just say this. Doesn't mean, let me just throw a hypothetical. Doesn't mean if a woman catches her husband watching porn, she should automatically divorce him because he's, he's committed sexual immorality. I'm arguing no. Divorce is not automatic under these circumstances, but is permissible as a last-ditch effort. That's very clear. I do not ever counsel a person to seek a divorce if there's been sexual unfaithfulness. I recommend counseling. I recommend um, premarital counseling, or not premarital, already married, counseling and things like that. But here's what's revolutionary about what Jesus says. What is revolutionary about Jesus is that he's applying the same standard regarding divorce to both men and women. Whereas the Pharisees made it pertain only to men. So this is radical because Jesus is giving women the option to divorce. Whereas before, there was no rights for women to do that. In addition, both those two schools, the Shimei and Hillel, required or commanded divorce if there was anything indecent in the wife. On the other hand, Jesus never requires or commands divorce, but only permits it based upon one exception clause, sexual immorality. Now, with that being said, let me ask the question you're probably asking. Is sexual immorality the only exception clause, or is there any other reason that divorce can be permitted biblically? And the answer comes in, Jesus, out of Jesus' words, there's only one, sexual morality. Out of Paul's mouth, there's another. So traditional, conservative evangelicals have looked that there are two exception clauses. The one from Jesus and the one from Paul. Let's look at the one from Paul. This is in 1 Corinthians 7. If you guys remember last semester when we talked about, when we went through 1 Corinthians, I think we, we talked pretty much in length about this. But let's just look at 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 15. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if a brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Okay, so if you're basically married, you become a Christian, your spouse is not a Christian, that does not give you permission to divorce that spouse. You're supposed to continue to live with them. If a woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Same thing. 
For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean. But as it says, they are holy. Okay, here's the exception clause, verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. What most scholars believe there is that Paul is teaching divorce permitted by the believer if an unbelieving or non-Christian spouse deserts or dissolves the marriage. So there's two clauses. One is sexual immorality, permission, not commanded, but permission. The second one would be desertion by a lost spouse. What does desertion mean? Well, it basically means that two people are married, and the Christian is married to a non-Christian, and the non-Christian in the marriage says, I don't want to be married to you anymore. I want out of this marriage. I'm, I'm done. I'm through. I'm out of here. The, non, the, the Christian should not file for divorce. The Christian should try every step they can to reconcile they should try everything they can to to be Christian in it. But if at the end of the day, the unbelieving spouse files for divorce, leaves, and deserts, Paul says that person who's the Christian is free to accept the divorce and is not enslaved. Does that that make sense? So those are the two exceptions. But again, I don't think it's a last-ditch effort. Now, let me give you some views out there. Those are the two main teachings on divorce in the New Testament, not a lot. Let me give you the views that Christians have held over the years. And I think we can, like, we'll just look at these views and say which one we hold to, and then within one view, there's three sub-views, okay? So this gets kind of confusing. But here we go. Here are the views, the big views. View number one says divorce is never permissible, whatever the reason. Can we accept that view? No, because Jesus gave two reasons, right? B, divorce is permissible in a limited number of extreme cases. I'm arguing we're going to go with B, but let me show you what C and D are. C is divorce is permissible in many cases. Some reasons, however, do not justify divorce. Many cases. Are there, did Jesus in the Bible give many cases or they give limited to two? And then the last one is divorce is permissible for any reason whatsoever. That would be the Hillel school. So I think we have to hold to position B. But within position B, there are three views. Okay, does this make sense? So here's the, position that, 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 here's the position that conservative evangelical Christians like us take. Divorce is permitted in extreme limited circumstances. Namely, sexual immorality and desertion by an unbelieving spouse. But then how does remarriage work in that? And how does divorce? So let me give you the three views, and I'll tell you who holds to these views. Okay, so here's view number one within the big view that we would, that we would all agree with. Is, am I making sense here? So we got four views. We reject three of them. We say we take the one view, and then within that one view, there's three views. Have I confused you enough? Okay, so here's, here's view number one in the view that, that, that's biblical. Divorce and remarriage is permissible for the innocent party of a spouse's adultery slash sexual morality and of an unbelieving spouse's desertion. It's permissible. Divorce and remarriage. So in other words, if you are an innocent, if you're the innocent victim in the marriage and your spouse has committed sexual immorality or he or she has deserted you, you have permission to both divorce and remarry. 
who holds to this view. You may not know these names, but they're, they're famous Christians. D.A. Carson, John MacArthur, John Murray, John Stott, Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's the official view of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Let me read to you the Westminster Confession of Faith because I think it's got, it's one of the only few confessions of, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the Presbyterian Confession, but a lot of Baptist confessions have come from it, is the only real confession of faith by the denominations that addresses this pretty explicitly. Let me tell you what they say. Here's, what, here's Article 6 of their statement on divorce and remarriage in the Westminster, and this was like around the, the 1600s when this came out. Although the corruption of man be such as, this is, that's why the language is, although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God has joined together in marriage, yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is sufficient cause of dissolving the bond of marriage, wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed, and the persons concerned in, in, in it not left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. Now, I'm going to come back to that because I, I think that statement says something very important, and I'm going to come back to it. Okay? So, view number one says, if your spouse is sexually unfaithful to you, or your spouse is an unbeliever and they've deserted you, as a last-ditch effort, you've tried everything you can try. You've tried counseling. You've tried reconciliation. You've tried legal separation. You've tried everything you can humanly try to reconcile, and it's just not. This view says you have permission to divorce and remarry. Okay? Let me give you view number two. This is a little bit more conservative view. Divorce is permissible for adultery. But remarriage is not allowed for both adultery and spousal desertion by an unbeliever. So this view says the only way you can divorce is if it's sexual unfaithfulness and you're not allowed to remarry after that. You can't remarry. Once the marriage has been dissolved and you've been divorced, you cannot remarry. Okay? Very limited view. This is um, Robert Gundry. I don't know if you know who Robert Gundry is. He's written a textbook. He's a New Testament scholar. Now, here's another view, and you'll be surprised who holds to this view. Neither divorce nor remarriage is permissible in the case of adultery. Divorce is permissible, but not remarriage in the case of desertion by an unbelieving spouse. So this view argues that even divorce, even sexual unfaithfulness is not, you cannot get divorced for sexual unfaithfulness in the case of adultery. In the case of desertion, it's permissible, but in neither case are you allowed to be remarry. Okay, who holds to this view? James Montgomery Boyce, Dwight Pentecost, John Piper. He's very famous. He's the famous one. And then F.F. Bruce. Okay, so which view do I hold to? I hold to view number one. It may not be as conservative as some of the other views, but, but I... I feel like there's enough latitude in the scriptures to allow for divorce and remarriage based upon those exception clauses. Um, but here's a question that I get asked a lot because this is not addressed as an exception clause. What about spousal or child abuse? I have that question asked a lot. Anytime I do Christian counseling, the question is, 
You know, should I divorce my husband if he's beating me and the children? Because Jesus doesn't address spousal abuse or child abuse. And I, I'm saying spousal because sometimes it doesn't just have to be the male beating up the, the wife. It could be the, hus- you know, the wife beating up. I've had, even had that before where, where the husband's been a victim of it. I like what this Westminster Confession says. What did it say? Willful desertion and that basically, um, let, let's go back, let me go back and read that. I'm going to go back to the screen. What they said was, willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate. Okay, so desertion that cannot be fixed or helped by the church or the civil authorities, the government, the courts. So what the Westminster Confession says is before you go to the courts, the way I interpret it, the church, first of all, needs to get involved. So here's the first step with me for, 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 that I would do. If a couple comes to me and the husband is beating his wife, number one, I'm a mandatory reporter, so I've got to report it. But number two, if he's a member of the church and he claims to be a Christian, he will undergo church discipline, which means we will take him through the church discipline policy, which means that we have to go through Matthew 18, which means that if you don't repent and get help, we take it to the next step. If you don't repent, we take it before the entire church and the whole church understands. And if you don't repent by then, you're excommunicated from the church and treated as an unbeliever. Which proves that you're, if you're not willing to, if you are claiming to be a Christian and you're beating your wife and you're not willing to repent and come under church discipline, it shows me that you're probably not a believer. So that falls under this whole unbelieving the unbelieving spouse, deserting. Now, in addition, what I would say is let's get the civil authorities involved. Do I want the wife and the children to be in a dangerous situation where they're going to continue to have their life in danger? Are there ways that a family can not be in a dangerous situation without getting a divorce? Yes, it's called legal separation. You can do a legal separation where you can get the kids and the wife out of the situation, and if he can agree to go through counseling or whatever. But my, I guess the way I interpret it is that if, if he's a chronic spousal abuser, he's unrepentant, and he's not willing to change, then to me it's desertion from an unbelieving spouse. And I think the last-ditch effort would be, I think uh, she would have permission to file for divorce. I would try to counsel her to stay legal separation as long as she could and see if this would get worked out. But if it's, if it's over a prolonged time, the church has gotten involved, the civil authority has gotten involved, and neither one of these can fix it, then I, then I think there's permission. Now, some people would disagree with me, like John Piper would disagree with me. Um, but I think you just have to, that's where we're at. Any questions on divorce and remarriage? Yes. His suggestion is legal separation until you both die. That you never file for divorce and, you know, and she doesn't have permission to get remarried. You just, you just have to live separate but married the rest of your life. and never Because they don't believe in remarriage. So, there's, some, there's some people in our church that believe this too, that believe, that, that believe the more conservative ways. He has, 
Well, I would say, yeah, if he's, if he's not walking out on him, what, what he's doing is basically he's making, he's making the marriage to be where it's not safe. Right. And he's acting like an unbeliever. And so, in a sense, he is deserting his responsibility of a husband and not fulfilling that duty and putting his, people, putting his family in jeopardy. And thus, I think that he is, in a way, even though he's not physically removed himself, he has, he, for all intents and purposes, he's not willing to want to work on salvaging the marriage. And the church has gotten involved, and the courts have gotten involved, and, and, and he's not willing to abide by either one of those two things. Now, a lot of churches want to, the, the problem is a lot of churches just want the courts to get involved, and they don't want to get involved because it's too personal. But if the person in our church is a member of our church, and they're acting in ungodly ways, we may have to do church discipline, which means behind the scenes, we may have to have certain meetings with them, and if they, and they're, if they don't repent, it may have to come before the entire church. I mean, I'm, that's just the way it works. Um, we've never had to do that, most of the time, they don't want anything to do with the church because they already have a guilty conscience. Um, it's usually the hard part is the woman stays in the church and trying to minister to her and her family while the husband's out doing crazy stuff. And he's not willing to keep himself accountable. So you can't really do much if he's not willing to keep himself accountable. And then you have to go to the civil authorities. Any other question on divorce and remarriage? Let me, oh yes, Sonia. Yes, if a spouse dies, the Bible gives permission to remarry after a death because the covenant vow is till death do you part. So a widow or a widower is allowed to remarry, no problems whatsoever. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, that's, that's very clear in the Bible. Yeah. The marriage is dissolved upon death of one of the two persons in the marriage. In God's eyes. Does that make sense? Well, I don't know if you're going to have a wife or a husband in heaven. Jesus says you're not going to be given into marriage in heaven. But, well, you, you'll probably hang out with them, but here's the thing. Here's the, we have these conversations all the time, and it's really bizarre. Here's the thing about heaven, Sonia, and this is a great question. The thing about heaven is that even if you did have three husbands, you're not going to care, and it's not going to bother you because you're going to be perfect. It's not going to be like he's not paying much attention to me and like your third husband or whatever is going to be like vying for attention because it's not going to be like that because you're going to be perfect, they're going to be perfect, and we're all going to be worshiping Jesus and, and, and it's not going to be an issue. Does that make sense? Okay, sure. it, well, I mean, it, okay. Right, and sometimes we want to have, I'm not saying that the relationships that we don't have here won't mean something in heaven. I mean, I sure hope that I get to hang out with Don. I mean, I think God does it in a special way, allow you to have special um, relationships in heaven with the person that you were closest to on earth. But it's not going to be, there's going to be no jealousy. Like if I don't spend enough time with her, like on earth, if for some reason, if I don't spend enough time with John, she could possibly get jealous here on earth because she's a human and she's still sinful. In heaven, like after, like if I don't pay attention for, for a thousand years, she's not going to come over and be like, Sean, it's been a thousand years. You know, you need to give me some more time. It's not, I mean, it's just not going to be like that because we're going to be perfect, okay? It's hard for us and our human minds to conceive of perfection in heaven and all the things we deal with. We won't deal with those things there. Well, and Jesus answered that question when the Sadducees yeah. were asking about it. He said, in, mar- in heaven there is no marriage. There is no marriage. There is no marriage. Yeah. Of course, that's where people get the idea that we're going to be like angels because he said you'll be like angels. Yeah. He didn't say we 
yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. You think it's funny? Like, oh, that's kind of scary. Okay. Are you laughing because of those? Are you laughing because of the women that would that would be married to me? Or no? Uh, here's the, let me let me give you guys. I know what you mean. Though. I know. <laughs> let me let me give you a final word and let's move on. Here's the final word. Uh, this is what I want you guys to hear. Adultery, sexual immorality, and divorce are not unforgivable sins that put a person beyond the reach of God's amazing grace. And number two, all of these are terrible sins that may come with devastating consequences, but the cross of Christ can cover multitudes of sins and he can bring great forgiveness and healing. Okay? We don't want to treat divorced people as second-class citizens or say that they can't be forgiven or somehow they don't have a place in the life of the church or that they're, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to go down that path. I will say this, that, that those that have gone through divorce, there are consequences that you deal with with sin, and those are things you have to, to deal with. God doesn't take those away, but there is forgiveness and healing through the gospel, okay? All right, let's move on to taking oaths. You guys ready? This is illustration number four, taking oaths. Verse 33, again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of God, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. In other words, the principle is let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now, Jesus kind of summarizes some of the Old Testament teaching on oath-taking and vows. So like, for example, Leviticus 19.12, You shall not swear by my name falsely, or so profane the name of the Lord your God, I am the Lord. So Jesus, or the Old Testament says you can't swear by the name of the Lord. You can't just flippantly use God's name in vain as a swear word or as, as giving an oath. And Deuteronomy 23.21, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. So if you make a vow to the Lord in the Old Testament and you didn't fulfill it, that's a big, huge thing to make a vow to the Lord and then not fulfill it. By the time that the Jews, by the time of Jesus, the Jews, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, all these people he's talking about, they developed a habit of what was called social swearing, kind of like our day, whereby they would swear by God's name or Jerusalem or whatever as a way to be true to their word. In other words, here's the problem the culture had become so dishonest and lacking integrity that they felt like they had like kind of a magical formula of put these words on the end of their words to make sure. It'd be like, oh, it'd be like saying a half-truth or a little white lie and then crossing your finger behind your back hoping that the other person wouldn't find out. So like what they would say is, I, re- you know, like, I really, 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 really mean this and I'm going to swear by God that I mean it. I mean, they would... Almost everything they would swear by something holy. And so it became to where everybody was swearing by everything and nobody's word meant anything. And it just became, it just became nothing. The issue was the lack of integrity. And so what Jesus is saying here is that we should be people of such integrity and honesty that our word is all that is needed. We shouldn't have to put a qualification on our word. 
Let your yes be yes and your no be no because when you stand and say yes, your word's enough. Now, my, I, I had a pastor um, friend. Well, he was a former interim pastor, Dr. Holly, older gentleman, and he took this very literally. And it came time, like he, he never, when he, when he bought a house, he did not sign legal paperwork. He shook on it, said my word's enough. And if that's not enough for you, I'm not buying this house. So now he sold it to another pastor. Another pastor sold it to him, but he bought his house on a handshake because he says my yes means yes. Now, in today's day and age, that's kind of scary legally, and I'm not saying you take it to that extreme, but James 5.12 says this, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. What Jesus is saying here, literally, I think, now we can take this to a legalistic place, but I think he's saying... Be such a person of character and integrity and honesty that when you speak, your words back up your actions. And people wouldn't have any question. You don't have to qualify anything you say. When you say yes, it means yes because you're character. And your no means no. Now, this brings up a question. Because Jehovah's Witnesses and Quakers and other people, um, Amish Does this mean that Christians should never take oaths such as pledging allegiance to the flag or swearing on the Bible in a court of law? Like I had jury duty a couple weeks ago and I had to stand in the courtroom and raise my right hand and swear an oath that I was going to tell the truth so I wouldn't commit perjury in the court of law. You guys, we still pledge allegiance to the flag. We're we're pledging an oath to our country. and, And Jehovah's Witnesses and Quakers, they won't do stuff like this. You know, Jehovah's Witnesses, they won't pledge the flag. Quakers won't do that. Is this what Jesus means, that we should never do this? No. Because in the Old Testament, we have example of people taking oaths. Abraham, Boaz. We have example of Paul all throughout the New Testament. I'll just give you one example. Paul's always saying, God is my witness. As God is my witness. As God is my witness. Romans 1.9. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit, in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul repeatedly, basically, and and Paul wasn't swearing flippantly. He wasn't saying, like, I swear to God. Like, he wasn't doing that. But what he was saying was, I am a credentialed apostle who has the right to preach to you and send you these letters because I have been commissioned by God. As God is my witness, he has commissioned me. And so it was a solemn thing for Paul. It wasn't just a flippant thing that he threw around. Jesus himself took an oath when he was on trial. In Matthew 26, 62 through 64, the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is this that the men testify against you? So he's on trial, and Jesus is told, You've got to give a testimony. Jesus remained silent. He wasn't going to say anything. And finally, the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So he says, I want you to swear by God. Swear by the living God, Jesus, that you are the Son of God. So the, the high priest there wants Jesus to swear an oath and answer his question. And what does Jesus do? You have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. He answers the question. And so even under a court of law, Jesus answered the question. 
So here's the summary, I think, of what Jesus is saying. Remember, this is the heart of the law, not necessarily the letter of the law in the Sermon on the Mount. As Christians, we should be very careful in how we speak. We should be truthful and we should never casually swear to God, which is a common saying, because it takes the Lord's name in vain and contradicts the spirit of what Jesus is teaching here. Okay? Does that make sense? Any questions on that? All right. Let's talk about retaliation. 38 through 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. But if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now this becomes very radical. Jesus is even getting more radical here because this has this is stumped a lot of scholars and a lot of Christians because you, you come to this passage of Scripture and you ask the question, how do I practically do this? In our day and age, I mean, is Jesus talking about literal? Because some of this stuff is cultural. How do I actually live this out? What Jesus is quoting from when he says an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth for example, Exodus 21, 24, Leviticus 24, 20, it gives that teaching. Here's what the teaching was in the Old Testament. Jesus quotes from some Old Testament passages that were meant to give clear direction to punishment in a court of law, not as a means for personal retribution or vengeance. Okay? Those eye for eye, tooth for tooth were not meant to be like vigilante justice where you went out and took matters into your own hands. Really what they were meant for was it was to help judges who were in courts of law in Israel make sure that the punishment fit the crime. Okay? So these were laws geared really towards judges in meeting out justice and punishment to make sure that the punishment fit the crime. It wasn't where you could just go out and do whatever you wanted to get even on someone. And so Jesus here is basically saying, number one, this, this does not give you permission to go out and do whatever you want to get back at people. And then he kind of quotes from Isaiah 50, 5 through 9. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. He will declare me guilty. Or who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. What the Isaiah there is saying is, no matter how people wrong me, my trust ultimately is that God will vindicate me. And what Jesus is going to give here is he's going to give four illustrations under this topic of um, retaliation that show the radical nature of his teaching. And a lot of this is cultural. So, so it may not mean much to us when, when we hear these things, okay? Like tunics and cheeks slapping and walking a mile. That may not mean anything to you. So here's the first thing Jesus says. We have expression in our culture, turn the other cheek, right? That comes directly from the Sermon on the Mount. Turn the other cheek. What does that mean? This was not an issue of being physically hurt by someone. 
Okay, it wasn't like somebody came up and punched you in the face. Really what it was, the right cheek, if somebody hit you on the right cheek and they were right-handed, it was like a backslap on the face. And what a backslap on the face was was not so much to cause physical injury, but a way to disgrace you, to dishonor you. Like, to, like, it would be, like in our culture, the closest thing I think would be giving somebody the middle finger and spitting in their face and cussing them out. Slapping them on the face was a way, and, and, and like a backhanded slap was even more dishonorable. And you had a right in that culture, if somebody slapped you, to, to go to the court of law and get financial compensation because somebody dishonored you. And you could be real petty and go to the court and say, he slapped me in the face and dishonored me. I want my, you know, he needs to pay a fine. Here's the principle I think that Jesus is saying for us. Literally, I mean, when's the last time somebody literally slapped you in the face? Okay, I mean, how literally do we take this? I think the, this is principle. The principle is God will vindicate us when we're dishonored and we should humbly accept insults without demanding our rights. Now, that's radical. Because what's the first thing we want to do? We want to fight for our rights. We want to defend ourselves. We want to slap back. We want to claw back. We want to fight back. We want to vindicate ourselves. And I'm going to address, so, so, so some questions are probably forming in your mind, and we're going to, I'm going to answer those as we get to the end because I know what question you're asking, and I'll get to it when we get to, to, to the end of, of this section. But I think that the, the radical thing about Jesus' teaching here is that he's the one that vindicates us. We don't try to vindicate ourselves. Okay? Now here's the second principle. Giving away your cloak. If someone takes your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, two, two pieces of, of clothing here. The tunic was like a t-shirt. Like, if, if, like in that ancient culture, they would wear a loincloth. Okay? The next piece over the, like, if, if you were just like, okay, it would be like a guy wearing a t-shirt. It was the closest thing to the skin before you were in your loincloth. So basically, it wasn't that big of a deal. If somebody takes your shirt, you know, if somebody takes a t-shirt of yours, it's not a big deal. I mean, they, they would steal it from you and they would take it from you and, and you know, it, like it's just a t-shirt. But Jesus says, let him have the t-shirt but give your cloak. The cloak was, well, I'll talk about that in just a moment. Let's look at the law from the Old Testament. It was strictly prohibited by law that a person had to legally give away their cloak. The cloak was important. Exodus 22, 25 through 27. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body, and what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. The cloak would double as a warm blanket. So it was a heavier piece of clothing that the Old Testament said, if you're going to charge interest for somebody, or so you're gonna have, if somebody has to give a down payment, and you, and you take their cloak, their outer garment, you better give it back to them at nighttime or you've broken the law. Because it's going to be cold at night and they're going to have to shiver. And what Jesus says is that right you have to keep that cloak because they stole your t-shirt, let them have your t-shirt and your cloak. That's pretty radical. So I think what Jesus' principle is, is this. Better to be wronged than to instigate a lawsuit 
Don't cling so tightly to possessions because God will provide. 1 Corinthians 6, 7. To have lawsuits with one another is already a defeat for us or for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? So principalizing would be, I don't know how, you, I don't know, I don't know how this works out in your individual situation. When's the last time somebody stole your tunic and you gave them your cloak? So I think you have to principalize these to say, sometimes we will be defrauded, we will be treated poorly, we will be taken advantage of, and sometimes we just need to humbly accept that and realize that sometimes possessions aren't to be so clung. We shouldn't stress out so much about stuff because God's going to provide. Now again, you're probably thinking questions. I'm going I'm to answer those here in just a minute. All right, walking the extra mile. If, where are we? If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This was very cultural. This involved the Roman Empire's practice of forcing civilians to actually carry their luggage of Roman soldiers for a mile. It was mandatory. They could commandeer you. Like, I could go up to Teresa and say, Teresa, you're carrying my luggage for a mile, and you, you had to do it. You couldn't, if I was a Roman soldier, you walked with me for a mile, and you were my, my porter, my, my bag, you know, carrying my baggage. And you had to do it. It was mandated. With no tip. But what does Jesus say? Don't just walk with the Roman soldier one mile, but go another mile. Now, why is it so radical that it's the Roman Empire? The Jews hated the Roman Empire. They were occupied by the Romans. They wanted, the zealots wanted Rome out of power. They wanted to set up an earthly kingdom where Jesus, they they wanted him to be the one to, to overthrow the Roman Empire. And so this was really radical. But think about the Roman, think about if you were a Roman soldier and somebody did the required because they were forced to, but then they walked another mile. How do you think as a Roman soldier you'd be? That ain't right. I mean, you're like, that's weird. That's, but here's the principle, I think, what Jesus is teaching. Sometimes we need to show radical humility and submission as a way to reflect the character of God. Sometimes we just need to be willing to go the extra mile, I guess. Literally, that's where, that's, that's where the word comes from. Go the extra mile to show that we're different. And the last thing Jesus says is give to beggars and borrowers. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, the one thing that you need to understand is Jesus doesn't set a limit either way. Because if we were to give to every person that begged to us, we'd be broke. And if we're to lend to every person that wants to borrow from us, so I think we need to be wise in how we handle that. And I also think it means don't give... If you're going to let another... I would say this. If you're a Christian and you're going to give another Christian money or let them borrow something, I think it should be interest-free, personally, Christian to Christian. I don't think you should charge interest as a Christian. That's a principle I think you see in the Old Testament. But here's the principle. We as Christians need to be generous yet wise. Okay? Now here's the question you've probably been asking all along. Hopefully you're asking this question because I was asking it. Does this teaching mean that we should never go to court or petition for our rights or stand up for ourselves when suffering an injustice? Does it mean we're just doormats and we never go to bat for ourselves? We never... We never go to a court of law. We, we just kind of let, let people railroad us all over the place. My answer is no. 
In the book of Acts, Paul appealed to his Roman citizenship to go before the court of law to plead his case. In the whole end of the book of Acts, Paul is going to Rome on his trip so that he can use his right as a Roman citizen to appeal. And so he, he appeals based upon his citizenship and says, I'm innocent of this, and uses a legal system to do that. I think here's the general principle that Jesus is teaching. If I can, right. The general principle is that we as Christians should not take matters into our own hands to bring about retributive justice in ungodly ways. We can submit to the governing authorities that God has placed in our lives and we can appeal to those when we've suffered injustice and allow the courts to determine the outcome. Even if the outcome from the court is not what we desire, we still trust God that he's got our greatest good and he's still sovereign. Because even if you do take it to the court, you could lose or not get a fair hearing. But ultimately, I think what Jesus is trying to say here is, is a principle in Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 21. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So I don't think it's legalistic where we can never go to court or we can never stand up for our rights. I think the general principle is when it comes to getting even or taking matters into our own hands, we're not to do that. We'll let, let God take care of that. And if it's appropriate, we can go to the governing authorities that God has established and let them work it out. And even if they don't work it out, we still trust that God's got our best interest in the long run. But we need to be marked by generosity, by um, compassion, humility, and radical living. Any questions on retaliation? before we move on to the most radical. It's more radical. Love your enemies. 43 through 47. This is the final illustration. Okay? You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven, For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brother, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Now, here's where the Pharisees really misquote the Old Testament. You've heard it said, what does it say, verse 43? You shall love your neighbor and what? Hate your enemy. Do you realize hate your enemy is not in the original text? They added that in. Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The word enemy, hate your enemy, was not in the original law. They added that in, the Pharisees. The Pharisees added that in. They misquoted the Old Testament and added that in. And... For a Jew, they thought their neighbor was only fellow Jews. Love your neighbor. Love people like yourself. But that didn't include Gentiles. It didn't include Samaritans. It didn't include anybody that was an outsider, that was different from you, that wasn't in your tribe or in your group. And so Jesus gives two radical teachings. What does he say? Love your enemies all types of enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. 
Now, I had to stop and ask the question, that's odd. Pray for your enemies and pray, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So what does that say about being a Christian? What's Jesus implying here? Being a Christian, you're going to have enemies and people who persecute you. Have you thought about that? By the virtue of the fact that you are a Christian living in the kingdom of God, you are going to get enemies and you're going to get persecutors. And how are we to treat them? We're to love them and pray for them. Now, if you will just do me a favor, um, go back to, to verse 10. Earlier at the very end of the Beatitudes, what does Jesus say in verse 10? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets who are before you. Jesus has already addressed persecution. Go with me, if you will, just real quickly to the Gospel of John. Go to John chapter 15. Those men that are in my Tuesday morning men's study, this, we've been looking at this for the past couple of weeks, but it's so early in the morning on Tuesdays you probably forgot. John fifteen eighteen. John fifteen eighteen. Let me read let me read some passages of what Jesus is teaching his disciples on the last night before he's before he's betrayed. John fifteen, eighteen through twenty. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. What does Jesus tell us? The world's going to hate us and persecute us. We're going to have enemies that hate us, and they're going to have persecutors that are going to come against us. And why? Because they did it to Jesus. He says, a servant's not greater than his master. Okay, go down to chapter 16, verse 33. John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Does he say you may have tribulation? You will have tribulation. John 17, 13. Look at chapter 17, verse 13. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So on three occasions in John, and actually here in Matthew, Jesus says we're going to have enemies, people hate us, and people that persecute us. And how, what, how are we to treat those people? What would be the natural way to treat those people? What the Pharisees said. Love, love people that are like yourself, but hate your enemy. And Jesus says, no, no, that's the exact opposite. There's going to be people that are going to come against you and hate you and persecute you and do all kinds of evil to you. You're to love them and you are to pray for them. And the question is, why? And here's the answer. Loving our enemies is a true reflection of God's gracious character. Were we, as non-Christians at one time, enemies of God? And did God hate us? Or does God love his enemies? Listen to what it says in Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore now we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, 
We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. That passage of scripture says we were under God's wrath and we were enemies of God. And he's reconciled us to himself through the blood of Jesus Christ. So the very character of God is to love his enemies. We were all enemies of God at one time, but through Jesus, he's reconciled us to himself. Colossians 1, 21 through 22, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, once that was what you were, you were alienated from God, you were hostile against God, you were doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So when we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, we are imitating God. Because God loves his enemies. And it even says that. What does Jesus say? Read it carefully. He says there in verse 45, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, we need to be real careful. He's not saying that if you love your neighbor, it's going to get you saved. Because that's works righteousness. Remember, these are, these are, he's talking to people who are already Christians. Okay, so he's not saying you somehow earn your way into heaven by loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. What Jesus is saying is, like father, like son. You may be sons of your father. You may be just like your father. And what's your father's character? Your father's character is to love his enemies. Because you would not be a son unless God loved you. Because before you were an enemy, before you were under his wrath, but now he's adopted you through Jesus. And then Jesus gives two examples here. He says, if you, love those who, if you love those who are like you, the tax collectors do that. And the tax collectors were the low of the low. I mean, even the lowly tax collectors, the, the scum of the earth tax collectors, they do that. It's easy to love people that are in your own group. And then he says, you know, if you greet or welcome only your brothers, the Gentiles do that. The outside Gentiles do that. There, there's really nothing radical or Christian about being nice to people who are like you. That's what Jesus is saying. Non-Christian pagans are nice and loving to people who are like them. What makes it truly radical and Christian is when you love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you. Now, we don't really understand this in America because we're not under persecution. But have you heard stories of the persecuted church and how they pray for their captors, and they pray for those that are torturing them. I mean, it's, it's inconceivable to think of. And we can't even put ourselves in, in, in those shoes to even think about how we'd do it if we were ever in those situations. But um, it's amazing to hear these stories from the persecuted church about how they really do love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them in reality. Okay, so Jesus has given six illustrations. And now he gives a summary statement in verse 48 that catches some people off guard. You must, therefore, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So what's Jesus saying? Once you've done all these things perfectly, you're saved. If you don't do these things perfectly, you're not saved. It almost sounds like Leviticus 19.2. God says to Moses, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, in the Old Testament, it was be holy because I'm holy. How does Jesus change it here? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He doesn't say holy. He says perfect. Now, let me give you 
a play on words here. The word perfect can mean absolutely sinless, but in more often than not times, it means mature or complete. Now, God is perfect and God is holy, but I think what Jesus is saying here, I don't think Jesus is making a blanket statement that if you're not perfect, you're not in the kingdom of heaven because nobody's perfect. I think here's the teaching that Jesus is saying. The main teaching here is that just as the Old Testament Israelites were to be distinct people set apart to reflect the glory of God to the nations, we too as Christians are to be distinct and set apart. Our lifestyle is that of the kingdom where we have different values and a worldview that translates into radical action that's totally foreign to the world. And notice that Jesus refers to him as who? Your heavenly father, assuming that we're already his children. So it's not this idea that you have to be, excuse me, excuse me, that you have to be perfect in order to earn God's good graces. What it's saying is, okay, God has adopted you into his family. You're his child. He's your heavenly father. And now because you've been born again, you're a citizen of the kingdom, your lifestyle is to be radically different from the rest of the world in such a way that you reflect these six illustrations and you're growing and maturing, and you're looking distinctly different than the world around you. And what's going to happen when that happens? If you live according, if, just take chapter 5. If you live according to Matthew chapter 5, this new life in Christ, how's the world going to look at you? Number one, they're either going to hate you, they're going to act indifferent to us, they're going to be curious about us, or they're going to be attracted to us. I don't know of any other. Those are about the four ways it's going to happen. You live out radical Christianity by God's grace, and there's going to be some people that hate you. You live out radical Christianity by God's grace, and people will be like, who cares? You live out radical Christianity according to God's grace, and there's going to be people like, I want to know a little bit more about that. That's curious. And there's going to be some people that are like, you know what, I want to be a part of that, and God may be working on their heart to bring them to faith because they see the testimony of Christians. Okay, so... Regardless of how the world responds to us, our aim is to please the Father by living out what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom. Now, Jesus has given six examples. Let's go back and look at these examples, and I'm going to give a summary statement of what each of these six examples, the main teaching from each one of them. So let's just go back and look in your Bible. The headings, you even have the headings, starting in verse 21. Mine says anger. Chapter, verse 27, mine says lust. Verse 31, divorce. Verse 33, oaths. Verse 38, retaliation. Verse 43, love your enemies. So six illustrations. What are these illustrations teaching? Number one, when it comes to murder, we must be people of gentleness who do not murder people in our hearts through unresolved anger and bitterness. That's what we looked at last week. Number two, we must be people who actively kill sin and who do not commit adultery by lusting in our hearts. Number three, We must take the sanctity of marriage very seriously and never divorce except for some extreme cases. We must be truthful people of integrity who do not need to qualify our words with meaningless oaths because we're marked by honesty. Number five, we must walk in humility and generosity and suffer injustice gently and allow God to sovereignly take revenge instead of fighting for our rights with others who have harmed us. 
And number six, we must reflect the very character of God and love our enemies. And I would say this. As a result, if you, if you are consistently living out these six qualities, it shows that you are becoming perfect in the sense that you are growing and being more Christ-like. And by the way, as I got down to, as I started thinking about this, when I started thinking about the heart of these things, what really emerged to me was this looks eerily similar to the fruit of the Spirit. Think about it. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. If you go back and look at the heart of all six of these illustrations that Jesus gives, not the letter of the law, but the heart behind it, I think you can find one of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit there. And you can tie the fruit of the Spirit into the, into the Sermon on the Mount and show really how by the power of the Spirit we're to live out our Christianity in very radical ways. Okay? Are there any questions?